He's got a beautiful backswing. Dad! Oh, he got all of that one. Oh my gosh. That is amazing. Lay up with an iron into the hazard. Well, that wasn't quite what I meant, you know. What's up, everybody? Welcome into another edition of the 73rd hole, the official podcast of Golf Oklahoma. Colby Powell, Taylor Williams, Sam Humphreys, Jim Woodward with you on a Wednesday as we uh, have now officially winded down and are ready to ramp back up after a long week at the PGA Championship. A long but rewarding week at the PGA Championship. So first show after the PGA, we've got Danny Edwards coming on to talk about his book and to talk about his life, which, by the way, if you don't know anything about the story of Danny Edwards' life, you're going to want to read the book. You're going to want to listen to this interview and then read the book. Also, at the end of the show, we're going to get a few minutes with Michelob Ultra Guy. And if you don't know what I mean by Michelob Ultra Guy, I, I think you do. It's the guy who went viral because when there were 100 people watching Tiger Woods hit a shot 10 feet away through their phones, he was holding his $18 beer and living his best life. And uh, we're going to have him come on to talk about what it's been like to be a viral sensation. But, uh, yeah, feels good to... It, obviously, PGA was great, but it's kind of nice having the rearview mirror and just keep plowing forward toward nationals. We're like Justin Thomas this week, Colby. We just went right back to work. We're working all week next week with the NCAA championship. We're just getting right back after it, right, T-Dub? Yeah, we're doing the old, the old Nick Saban 24-hour rule. I think we kind of went 48-hour rule at this point, but I'm still not off the cloud now from the PGA championship. I'm sure I'll get there at some point. I don't ever want to get off, but you know, going to one of my favorite courses, in the rotation at Colonial, it's hard to beat that place, Woody. It's just uh, so majestic, and it seems like the best player always tends to win that tournament. You know, Colonial, Colonial is just—it's such a classic golf course, and it—it uh, it, I have so many memories there from not only getting to play a few times, and uh, and then uh, caddying one year for Lindy Miller, and my whole job was just to look for girls. I didn't get a distance. <laughs> I didn't read a putt. Yeah. I didn't do anything. Now, before everybody gets mad at me, I wasn't married. I was single. I was at Oklahoma State. So my job was really easy. And it, at Colonial, it's not hard to find pretty women, boys. Well, Let me Woody, just tell were you, you that. good at oh, your job? My. Were you good at your job? Oh, I was, I was fabulous at my job. <laughs> I really was. And, in fact, I was so good at my job that I think he finished uh, in the top 15. You know, he was having so much fun with me just looking around for him. So, so Woody, there's not actually three caddy rules. It's not just show up, keep up, and shut up. There's also look for girls at the end of that. That's the look, look for look girls. Up. Well, look up. For, yeah, that was that was that was my my whole week. I'm not kidding you. I never ride up a putt. I never got a distance. I didn't do one dang thing. I had some of the mirror sunglasses and had long hair at the time. I was a bad looking boy, and I was I did a I did a fabulous job that week. That's so Woody. Woody, what's the Woody? What's the secret to scouting when you're in that position? It seems like it's a it's a trade that has to be learned, not to, not taught. Well, let's just say that the the uh, there was uh, multiple targets, shall I say? It was there were so many I couldn't hit. I was I was just like, oh my, look over there, look over there. A couple of times he had to tell me, hey Woody, I gotta hit a shot right now. Leave me alone. I said, okay. <laughs> That's great stuff. That is great stuff. So here's what I want to do with Colonial. Usually we wait a little longer to do strength of field. Taylor, if you don't have it pulled up, I'll, I'll give you a minute to pull up strength of field because. 
I, I couldn't believe it whenever I saw the field list. Yep. I, I think maybe proximity to, to Tulsa, but Scheffler, Morikawa, Thomas, Hovland, Spieth, Burns, Zalatoris, uh, Finau, Answers in the field, Sungjae, Holmes, Holmes down there, TG's in the field. I mean, this is a quality, quality field for the Charles Schwab Challenge down at Colonial. Taylor, you got the uh, strength of field ready for us? I do right here, guys. It's pretty astonishing from what I thought. You wouldn't expect the week after a major championship that it would be this high. So whichever one of y'all wants to go first, fire away. Burger's in the field. I forgot about Burger. Go ahead, Sam. 619. Ooh, 619. Woody, what do you think? You got a strength of field guess? (laughs) Wow. I would would say it might be 650. Man, there's a lot of guys in the field. I I don't think it's quite that high. I think it's 569. Tyler? I, I like that you and Sam both had a six and a nine in your guesses for the brand. I appreciate that. For the brand. Um, we're looking at 484, guys. So really? just a shade below 500. Um, we do have six wow. of the top 10 players in the world playing. That's pretty astonishing. Um, but then once we get to about outside the top 50 players in the world, it kind of drops down a little bit. I think yeah. there's more players in the top 50 than there are 51 through 100. So I think that's kind of the only thing that's keeping the uh, rating as low as it is. But, I mean, it's awesome field this week, guys. Absolutely awesome. Yeah, guys, and we were talking about it. Part of it might have to do with proximity this week. It also might have to do with the fact there's only three tournaments in between the PGA and the U.S. Open. That's the Charles Schwab Challenge this week and then the Memorial and then the Canadian Open. So if guys take the week the, off. The Canadian Open slash Live London Series. Right, exactly. Uh, so if guys take the week off before the U.S. Open uh, and want to play twice before, they're going to have to play at the Colonial and the Memorial. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, some good golf coming up. Good golf this week at the Memorial. And you should go see our good friends at Quail Creek Bank. They're a family-owned and operated a bank and that's how they treat you like family and that's what you want from your bank uh woody you know these people you've known them for a long time and uh, they'll get you taken care of am i right fabulous bank fabulous bank take care of all your needs uh from the smallest to the largest that's what i that's what i loved about that bank and personal you're right you call you're gonna talk to a person i tell you what it's a great bank located right there on 122nd in may uh i've done banking with them my whole life love them Yep, that's great stuff. Go see our good friends at Quail Creek Bank, 405-755-1000. It's easy enough, 755-1000. Go see our good friends at Quail Creek Bank. Uh, Justin Thomas playing the week after a major. Taylor, are you surprised that he's playing this week at Colonial, and do you think that there's any way that a guy can climb down off the major high four days later and tee it up and, and have real success contend and be near the top of the leaderboard come Sunday? Well, I mean, I guess if anyone was going to do it, it would be Justin Thomas, you know. And, you know, we've kind of been kind of hitting on his game, right? What has he done leading up to the PGA? We talked about how he had struggled in majors before he won. But, you know, guys, he finished fifth down to Byron Nelson, finished eighth at the Masters, third at the Valspar, sixth at Genesis, eighth at the Waste Management. So he's had an absolute stellar year. It seems like the only times he hasn't finished um, inside the top ten is at um, was at the players when he got the bad end of the draw and at the match play whenever he um, obviously didn't make it through the round. And then the Heritage, which was the week after the Masters. So there is a little bit of concern there, especially when you're off the emotional high. But So, yes, I would be probably pretty astonished if he won, just going off the fact of, like we just talked about, strength to build a 484, so many great players. Uh, Scheffler, Spieth who, Spieth, who doesn't seem to ever play bad at this golf course. So I would be hard-pressed to say JT would win. 
but but I don't think he's going to miss the cut. I think he'll be there all four rounds and uh, definitely make a, a nice check, just not near as nice as it was last week. So JT's only played here twice. In 2021, he finished 40th, and in 2020, he finished 10th. I have a trivia question for you three. Colby, you go first. When's the last time JT missed a cut on the PGA Tour? Oh, wow. That's a good question. Uh, let's go. Man, I really don't know. I would imagine it was probably last summer sometime once you get into the dog days of summer. Um, I don't know. I'll just, I'll, I'll just throw out last year's memorial. That's just a, a wild guess. Last year's pretty, memorial. Pretty close. T-Dub? Wait, no. He missed the cut players, right? This year. No, he didn't. No, yeah, no, he, he, he played really good in the second round. Oh, you're right. Yeah, he so, had the unbelievable second round. Okay, yeah, I'll go. Uh, okay, I'll throw out last year's memorial as a guess. Y'all go ahead, Woody. Heck, boy, I, I knew you guys would ask me this question. I'd say <laughs> That's a good uh, question. I'd say I'd say he missed it San Diego. Hmm, well, okay. I know this, guys. I know that JT currently has the longest streak on the PJ Tour of cuts made. A uh, second on the list is Billy Horschel. Um, but I actually had the world ranking for him popped up in front of me. So if I say the answer, I'll cheat. So do you want me to go ahead and say it, Sam, or do you want to go for it? Go ahead and say it, T-Dub. TJ Championship last year. Wow. 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 Kiowa. He, he went a full year without missing a cut. That's impressive. Or I guess technically he would have to make the cut this year, or this week at Colonial uh, for the, it to be a full year, right? I think the exact one-year anniversary of Phil's win was Monday. So I think he's he's made it a full 365 days. That's unbelievable. That's impressive. Really, especially considering he got the really bad weather draw at the players. Guys, he also got the bad weather draw at the PGA Championship and won the tournament. And yes, I feel like did. that's flown a little bit under the radar. I mean, Woody, I know you were down in uh, in Norman the first few days, but we were all up there on that Thursday and Friday. And Taylor, you spent more time outside than I did. I, I was inside working more than I more than I probably would have liked, but. It was seriously windy Thursday afternoon, Friday morning, and that's when JT was on the course. Oh, yeah, he he did really good, didn't he? When you think about it, he wins that golf tournament, and he got the bad draw. So, and we talk about those draws all the time, and to to win the golf tournament with a bad draw that shows you how good he's playing. And it was it was really interesting to me, guys. Like like I talked about on our recap show, you know, wanting watching him before his round, right? Because he had talked about before if he had shot four sixty seven that he'd be in business with PGA. Well, he threw in a seventy four in the third round, so that wasn't necessarily up there. But two, but essentially three sixty seven the rest of the way. And it was great to see him that morning, or I guess the early afternoon, I guess, to figure out the things that he was working on, knowing that he played so bad in round three, what he was going to do in, in round four. And I'll be honest with you guys, I didn't see a shank coming from what I saw in the rain session, <laughs> but um, definitely showed that he was able to learn from his mistakes and to have that composure on there. It was just absolutely stellar stuff, guys. Yeah, it most definitely was. Uh, also, Stellar, the Groovy Brush. Go to GroovyBrush.com. Check them out. Use our promo code 73rd hole. Uh, I would imagine that uh, – does a Groovy Brush work on the hosel? Uh, I don't know, JT, whenever you, you, you hit that <laughs> it shot. It does. On yes, stick. I can vouch for that. Yes, it does. <laughs> you can vouch for that. Okay. That's Now, Taylor, you're, uh, you, you are the proud owner of the greatest shank that I have ever seen in Marlowe on the 12th hole. <laughs> in Marlowe? In Marlowe. You care to tell the story, Taylor? So it's yes, it's on a it's on like a 270 yard par four, but it's kind of like an island green. So what am I gonna do? I'm gonna lay up for accuracy. You know, the, football and play. The wind, the wind kind of determines whether you lay up or go. Yeah, because it, it's right in between. Depending on the wind, it can be between driver or three wood, or even if you get a good wind, it can be between three wood and five wood or whatever. So I had a little six iron for accuracy. Well, you got to try to hit a little draw off the tee box, put it in the right position, and uh, got the hands a little close to the ball and. I sprayed Hosel rocket it. There was a whole another hole to the right uh, of where of this hole, 
and it went plumb through the trees all the way through that fairway, rolled about a foot across the fence. And uh, luckily it was a best ball, so Colby was able to carry it from there. But uh, we ended up not winning or even sniffing a check. So might as well blame that shank on the reason we played so shit. Guys, where is Marlowe, by the way? Mar- you go to Chickasha, uh, and then you go south about 25 miles. Okay. Yeah, and you're in Marlowe. And it's honestly, it's a good little track in Marlowe. It's a fun course. It's uh, it's quirky. Front nine's kind of hard. Back nine's got a lot of short par fours. Uh, you would feast on it with your I distance. Uh, yeah, you would love Marlowe. I promise you would love Marlowe. So, we might uh, need to make a Marlowe trip. Some fun times. Some fun times in Marlowe, for sure. Hey, hey you guys know, and, and I'm going I'm to brag on you, a shank is the closest thing to a pure shot you can hit. That's what I was telling myself after the fact, Woody. But then I, I, I watched the ball go 100 yards and then 180 yards right. So I said, well, that didn't feel very solid. What do you – So the, the moral of the story, though, was no matter where you hit it on the club face, you need the groove at brush. That guy, it's, I mean, it's the best club cleaner ever made. You can clean off the toe, the center of the club face, or you can clean off the hosel if you have a uh, JT slash T-Dub moment. So go to grooveatbrush.com, use our promo code 73rd hole for 10% off. Woody, you ever shanked one in a tournament? Oh gosh, yes. Heck, I can. I can't. I, there's so many of them. I don't know where to start. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's. I know. I I pitched it out on more than one occasion. Luckily, I didn't do it with a lot of gallery. I was so going to say, did you ever hit anybody? Have you ever hit a spectator? No, I never, with a I never, never hit a spectator with a shank. That was what I was going to tell you. That one would probably. That one would be a fix in my imagination, my memory. But I. Uh, no, I, I I I pitched out my share. I, I and I still do it. I mean, I when you least expect it, was scary. Woody, I got to ask you from a teacher's perspective. It seems to me like the hardest shot in golf is the one right after a shank. So, what are you supposed to do after the shank? You're supposed to aim for the toe and and just hope you don't get close to the hosel. What's the secret? Uh, that you called it. Uh, you 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 get it out towards the toe and uh, uh, you you make sure most most bad amateurs shank the ball because they come over the top most good players come from too shallow with the face open too much so you you kind of you kind of favor the toe a little bit and you just kind of get your confidence back it, it they're never really pretty after a shank but it, it, it i've never shanked back to back so uh, that that i guess that's the most important thing to remember don't do it twice what do you, one more shank question and we'll get off this. Otherwise, we're going to have the yips all show. No. Uh, but I, I am I am curious. Now, I've always heard that you shank it because too much weight is on your toes. Is there any is there any um, you know viability to that? Oh, I think that's that's a big part of it, and that's why I say that the amateur golfer he gets on his toes and gets out over the top. That's when they that's when they really that's when the most shanks are are hit. Uh, Usually a good player, uh, he just gets the club too far behind him coming into the impact area, and it just it's a pitch out. And JT is pretty upright. He has one of the more upright swings on the tour. So the more the club's upright, believe it or not, the more tendency there is to shank the golf ball. Yeah, that's uh, I've heard a lot of that, and you know JT overcame. You got to overcome <laughs> whenever bad things happen in your round. You just keep playing forward. Carson Cunningham had the tweet of the week. He said he posted the video of JT, and he said, oh, yeah. "I too can win the PGA Championship." Yes. Carson, <laughs> I don't know what it is about Carson Shank. We played a lot of golf together, or Carson Swing. 
he like he doesn't always have them, but they'll just randomly pop up. And if he hits one, he's fried. I'm telling you, if he hits one, oh, he is God. absolutely. I hope he listens to this podcast. If he hits one, he oh, is mentally no. fried. So uh, let's get to our DraftKings lineups here, gentlemen, so that we can move along before we get Danny Edwards on to talk about his book, Driven the Danny Edwards Story, forward by Johnny Miller. Looking forward to talking to Danny Edwards and the Michelob Ultra guy to end the show. I'll start with my cheapest option. I ran him out last week. I'm running him out this week. I'm throwing every everything at you guys but the kitchen sink Stewart sink wow. he's just he's steady man he's just he's just old man steady turned 49 last week at the pga uh had a good week didn't didn't totally redeem himself from what he did at southern hills in 2001 but it was a good week he just makes cuts finished his top 25 uh, i'll take Stewart sink at 7100 i really really like that pick uh colby but i'm gonna go with 6400 Harry Higgs, and the reason why I'm going with the big rig this week on my DraftKings lineup is because I'm looking for guys with Dallas connections. Obviously, he played his college golf at SMU. Give me the big rig. So, real quick, Tyler, before you go, Harry Higgs also got two days of rest, extra days of rest, because he didn't play Saturday and Sunday. (laughs) And when I tell you guys that that was a blessing in disguise, as I was leaving the golf course on Friday, Harry Higgs was like the last group on the course. He was walking up 18 Boys, I didn't know if he was going to make it. (laughs) Harry Higgs and Southern Hills did not get along in that Thursday-Friday heat. By the way, he was in the crowd on 17 drinking beers with the fans on the weekend. That's phenomenal. That's phenomenal. Great stuff from Harry Higgs. Tyler, who you got? What a hero Harry Higgs is, man. I watched him hit quite a few balls. I really liked what I saw, but, man, just the physique. He's basically a modern Darren Clark, you know, and so – Eventually, if he would have passed out on the hill, we could have named it the Darren Clark, Harry Higgs Hill. Didn't quite get there yet, but he may at some point if he ever makes it back to Southern. So, my team is awesome here, guys. I could not believe the amount of disrespect I saw on DraftKings here. 6,000, very bottom of the barrel. Give me Kansas State's finest, Robert Stripp. I mean, I know he's oh. not playing the best the last couple of weeks. He's missed three cuts in a row, but it's been his seventh at the Valspar a couple, about a month ago. And, guys, he's played here seven times. The last six times he's played here, he's made the cut. So I don't think that streak's going to break. You don't have to be a long hitter at Colonial. You've got to put it in play and be able to chip. And Strep's having a pretty good chipping year for him. So really like that bottom of the barrel. Then I'm going to go up to 7,900, my cheapest pick, or my uh, second cheapest pick. Probably the quietest top five I've ever seen in a major championship last week. That's Chris Hurt. I mean, he was playing some good golf. He gained strokes in every single category that week. He played, the, uh, he played at Colonial, I believe I'm counting here right, 10 or 11 times. And I'm still trying to find a miscut form, one back here in 2015. So I, I don't know, guys. I feel like my two cheapest options are just exceptional value. And now that I can go top head, I'm going to be tough to beat this week. We have a a spam caller, by the way. Uh, Get off our podcast. (laughs) Trying to infiltrate the 73rd hole here. The Russians. The Russians. Uh, But anyways, guys, I mean, I'm loving all your picks today. We didn't we didn't uh, call each other before this show and give out each other's picks, but I am going with the kitchen sink at seventy one hundred for all the Love reasons it. you gave, Colby. Love it, Stewart Sink. That's my guy. Uh, I'm going to go with another guy who's become pretty reliable. Aaron Rice just he's playing good, not great golf. He's kind of been around. Uh, he was there in Mexico with a chance going into the final round. Shot seventy two in the final round. Needed a low one. Didn't work out for him. Byron Nelson a few weeks ago opens with three straight sixty eights. And then the 70 on Sunday, just whenever he really could have used that 66 or 67, uh, ends up dropping him back a little ways. So he's, he's been pretty good Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Maybe this is the week where it continues into Sunday. So I'll take Aaron Rye at 7,200. Uh, and then I'm moving up. I'm a little more mid-loaded this week. 
I'm going to go with the defending champion, Jason Kokrak. Uh, I mean, he loves this golf course. He finished first here last year. Uh, he finished third here the year before in 2020. Jason Kokrak, you know, there, there's times whenever he pops up, uh, finished 60th last week at the PGA, so not great, but made the cut. Hasn't missed a cut since uh, Valspar, and uh, he's kind of, this is his going away tour before he heads to London. So I'll take Jason Kokrak. Colby, I'm sticking with the Dallas Connections. Give me Ryan Palmer at 7,300. 7,300's too low for Ryan Palmer playing in the state of Texas. Does he Come get on. a teammate? Does he get a team with Scheffler, Morikawa, <laughs> or Rom or somebody? He does not need a teammate at Colonial. Give me Ryan Palmer, T-Dub. I had Ryan Palmer in my lineup as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. He was able to mix it up a little bit, so he's not in there anymore. Give me 8,100, everyone's favorite golfer. We all root for him every single week. That's Kevin Knopf. I mean, <laughs> talk about a guy who just absolutely loves uh, Colonial. Won there back in 2019 and then finished 10th there 2015, 4th in 2018. So definitely loves this place. He's playing pretty good the last few weeks. He's had uh, five straight made cuts, the 23rd at Southern. Um, been gaining a lot of – been gaining strokes approach every single week going all the way back to the Bay Hill. So really loves him, Kevin Knopf, this week. The only reason I would ever root for him is if I pick him. So this will be one of the few weeks that that happens. My next pick, guys, I mentioned him earlier when we were talking about that Justin Thomas' cut streak. 8,500, second longest cut streak on the PGA Tour is Billy Horschel. He's played here four times, has made all four cuts, has no finish higher than 19th, but I do expect him to play good. And I just want to throw this out about Billy Horschel. He has not missed a cut since the U.S. Open last year, but I picked him at the Players' Championship where he freaking withdrew, so I didn't get any money. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Billy Horschel. Really appreciate it. All right, guys. Well, then I'm going to go with probably the most slept-on player on the PGA Tour so far this year. It's 7,600. Give me Tom Hoagie. 15 to 20 made cuts, four top tens. Tom Hoagie at 7,600 is way, way too low, Colby. Uh, yeah, I definitely agree. He, he's been a good player uh, all year long. I'm stepping up, though, and I'm going up to 8,400. How about Davis Riley? How about a little Davis Riley love? He's having a great year. He finished second at Valspar earlier this year, uh, fifth in Mexico, top 10 at the Byron Nelson, finished ninth, and a 13th place finish at the PGA last weekend where he went 73-71 on the weekend. So he kind of backtracked a little bit. The whole field was kind of backtracking. He didn't play terrible, no, though. The, the Sunday 71 is actually really good. The, yeah. the whole field uh, was kind of backtracking. But uh, 13th last week at the PGA, coming off two top finishes before that, I'll take Davis Riley, who is also, by the way, Dallas kid. He, he and Will Zalatoris were well, rooming together down he, there. Not a Dallas He's not kid. He lives Dallas. in Dallas. He's yeah. not from Dallas, but he, he from lives in Dallas now. From Mississippi, played at Alabama, now he lives in Dallas. He, he's been in Dallas. He's been in there, there several years, though. Several yeah, years. Few, yep. uh, so, and then I'm going to go up. My next pick, lost it, lost it, found it. Daniel Cheeseburger oh. uh, down in Dallas. He... I just had enough to get him, and I just feel like it's value on a player uh, hey, of his caliber. Great call by me last week saying that the player that I saw on the range that was hitting at the absolute best was Daniel Berger, and he emceed. And, and by the way, Taylor was right that JT was the one hitting it worse on the range. JT even said as much on Thursday <laughs> after his 67. He's like, yeah, my range sessions were awful. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, Berger was flushing it. JT was missing the center of the face, and JT wins the tournament. Berger missed cut last week. Not worried about it. Top 20 here last year, one here the year before. I'll take Berger at 9K. My second most expensive pick is the most obvious pick on the history of this planet or any other planet. It's <laughs> 10,400 Jordan Spieth. I don't have to explain myself, T-Dub. No, no, you really don't there. The record speaks for itself. My next two pick, guys, last two picks, going to be definition of loyal to the soil. So at 9,300, Give me the sooner Abraham answer. I can't think of a course on the PJ Tour that suits his game any better. And he's coming off a ninth place finish at the PJ Championship at Southern. He's played Colonial four times, um, made the cut every time the last two years. He's finished 14th in each year, respectively. So 
really, really like Amster. Then my most expensive guys, going up to 10000 another loyal to the soil pick, Oklahoma State's finest, Victor Hovland. Played here last or played here two years ago. My apologies. Finished twenty third, and then he's been on a, a pretty good run here. Not as good as he was, was at the start of the year when he won three out of five events, but has not missed a cut since the uh, the waste management going back then. And uh, like what I'm seeing from him, it seems like according to the analytics that his tipping actually has gotten a little bit better. He actually gained strokes tipping last week at the PJ Championship, which is something I could not believe my eyes when I saw it. So. Like what I'm seeing from Hovland, and uh, I expect him to have a, a top five, top ten finish at work. All right. Well, Jordan Spieth's not my most expensive. I think you guys know who I'm going with. I'm going with 11,200 Scotty Scheffler. I don't think there's any chance that he misses two cuts in a row, especially playing in Dallas. I Again, I don't have to explain myself, Colby. Yeah, no, you definitely don't. My uh, My most expensive option, I'm coming up. Uh, who was your pick just now? Scotty. I'm multitasking. Okay, Scotty. Another Dallas guy for me. It's not Scotty. How about Willie? How about Willie? He just goes, yeah. he stripes it every week. The putting is what the putting is. It's uh But it was good. It, it, it was it was better. It was better. It was uh it looked it didn't look great, but it was better. It was producing some results. It was uh what were they what was McGinley and those guys comparing it to? Furix, full yeah. swing is like his putting stroke. I compared it more to like <laughs> Charles Barkley's golf swing, which yeah. has a little hitch in it. But he was he was making his three footers. Uh, he did miss the four and a half footer on sixteen, but seventeen and eighteen made some good putts. So I'll take Zalatoris at ten thousand and one hundred. Hey, let me, let me ask you guys this real quick before we get on to the one and done pick. Do you think it's a tougher week for JT coming out of the playoff and winning and celebrating? Or is it tougher for Zalatoris getting all the way to the playoff and not winning? I want to answer that. I think that confidence is something that is so hard to find in the game of golf that even if you you know spend 24 hours, like Nick Saban says, celebrating, I, I still Nick, think... Nick Saban says a lot of things. I still think that, that Zalatoris is going to have a tougher road after that PGA, especially the week after, than Justin Thomas, just because you know he was so close and you spend so much of your your mental capacity and physical capacity to try to win that week and you come so close and then you don't get it and you kind of leave the week feeling down when you really played solid golf. I, I think you could maybe even see like a missed cut from Zalatoris this week. Mm, man, I hope you're wrong. I definitely hope you're wrong. Uh, by the way, I don't know if you guys saw this. The winner of this event this week, sometimes they give out some unique prizes uh, for Colonial. The winner this week is going to get a 1979 Firebird, like a, a pimped-out 1979 wow. Firebird. Yeah, yeah. The, it, this is It's a Charles Schwab thing. So Charles Schwab started sponsoring this event in 2019. Kevin Na won that year. He was given a 1973 Dodge Challenger, which he gave to his caddy. So Kevin Na, world-renowned nice guy, gave his uh, 1973 Dodge Challenger to his caddy. Uh, because of COVID, Daniel Berger did not get a vehicle in 2020. <laughs> it skipped Daniel Berger, <laughs> which is hilarious. And then last year, uh, Jason Kokrak got a 1946 Dodge Power Wagon. Which, Don't you get a jacket, too? Uh, which is a truck. At it's Colonial? a big truck. You do get a jacket. It's like one of those tartan jackets, like red uh, stripes and, yeah, and checkers. And plat- but how is it not the same plaid. jacket as, uh, as I'm, the I'm describing, RBC? I'm describing stripes and checkers like an idiot. It's plaid is what it's called. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, don't, don't you get the same jacket for winning the RBC? They're remarkably similar. I mean, remarkably similar. All right, let's throw out some one-and-done picks so that we can talk to Danny Edwards. Uh, boys, I have no idea who was the highest last week. Did anybody have a good one-and-done pick last week? Uh, I didn't, for sure. Yeah, Morikawa and... Uh, who was your other one? I, 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 had, I had Morikawa oh, and Matthew Kayla. That's why I can't oh, remember it. 
Yeah. It's because he finished like DFL. Yeah, you can't remember it because he hadn't played golf in six days. That's why you can't remember it. Uh, I had Morikawa and Matsuyama who both played Sunday and both played poorly. I think they finished eight and nine over. So yeah. uh, no good ones. I'll get us started. Taylor, you talked about uh, his accomplishments whenever you, you were doing your DraftKings lineup. Such a nice guy giving his caddy the car. Kevin, uh, I'm going to have to root for him to walk in some putts this week. I'm running him out in the one and done. Sam? Okay, this is weird. You guys, I feel like you guys are on the same wavelength as me this week. I was kind of debating between Kevin Na and Chris Kirk. Chris Kirk obviously has never missed a cut at this event. Uh, so give me Chris Kirk because I don't really feel like rooting for Kevin Na this week. <laughs> you know, guys, whenever you're basically DFL and, and the one and done, you got to start making some moves. So I'm going to go with the guy who does not know how to play bad golf on this golf course. He has three seconds and a win. Give me Jordan Speak. Wow. wow. Okay. It's time. <laughs> okay. It was time. He's reaching. Jordan Spieth, good stuff. Hey, you got to start chasing at this point, boys. There's a lot of chasing that needs to be done, and I got to start pretty soon. So, Jordan, I had to ask some unrelated questions for uh, Brantley Romines doing a 10-year oral history of the NCAAs in 2012 that Texas and Jordan Spieth won. So I had to go up and ask him some questions after his final round Sunday. But before that, he talked about his trip to the PGA Championship, Taylor, and he actually he sounded fairly confident, even though it wasn't that great of a week. He pretty much said that he just – was misreading the putts. Felt like he hit a lot of good ones that weren't going in the hole. He just said the hole pretty much looked really small, but other than that, he felt like he hit it well, and he feels good. So uh, I was pretty impressed yeah. with Jordan Spieth when I asked him if he was if he thought he was neglecting his putting during his swing change, and he was pretty candid and yeah. said, "Yeah, like yeah. basically that he was." Uh, what do you, What are your thoughts on Spieth? Well, it's I don't know. It's a Doctor Jekyll, Mister Hyde. Uh, you know, just about the time I thought he was lost as he could be, he goes and wins. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I, I still don't quite understand what he's doing, but, um, you know, Jordan Spieth won all those golf terms because he putted real well. He, he never, he wasn't a bad ball striker, but he wasn't what you call world class, especially off his tee shot. So he was the greatest I, 20 I'm, foot and positive or 20 foot plus putter of all time. Right. Woody. Oh, my. I mean, can you imagine? When we think back at how many putts he made, he made so many putts in that, that era where he was winning everything. So, I don't know. I find it I find it ironic how they work really hard changing their golf swing, and then they kind of forget what got them there. So, hopefully he's getting back focused on the short game because that's what made Jordan Speed so good was his short game. Yeah, and I'll say this real quick, guys, doing some research on speed. Since the Farmers, I guess since the, the Pebble Beach Pro or Colby Pitching finished second, he's only had one tournament where he's lost strokes off the tee, and he had one other tournament where he had to be the Masters where he lost strokes can't approach the green. So he's ball striking against the perp. But, guys, in those ten events or nine events, he's only gained strokes putting in three of them. So six of those events, he's losing strokes. And quite a bit of strokes putting, too. So, But he's going back to the course that he's familiar with and knows the greens as well. It's one of the reasons why I'm riding with him this year. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we're fixing to go talk to Danny Edwards, but first I want to remind everybody to go see our good friends at Ring Family Dentistry. Ring Family Dentistry goes out of their way to ensure all treatment is as comfortable as possible. Leading edge technology, delivering same-day crowns for more than 20 years. Uh, Clearliner Orthodontics implants, they do it all. If they can't show why treatment is needed, they will not prescribe it. They explain their opinion, they answer any questions, and ultimately leave all decisions to the patient. Ring Family Dentistry. Check them out. We're going to take a break, come back 
back on the other side. We're going to talk to Oklahoma State legend Danny Edwards and talk about just his life. Uh, we're going to we're gonna try to get Danny Edwards telling some stories because Danny Edwards, yep. he's left a life, a life that has some stories. Uh, and then we'll talk to the Michelob Ultra guy to wrap out the show, and we'll be done. We'll be headed off uh, toward NCAAs next week, which is going to be a lot of fun. So stay with us here on the 73rd Hole, the official podcast of Golf Oklahoma. When something the size of a golf ball hits your roof, you need to call McRae Roofing. McRae Roofing is Oklahoma's designer roofing service specialist. For years, Jeff McRae and the experienced team at McRae Roofing and Exteriors have served fellow Oklahomans by helping them with their roofing needs. McRae Roofing uses only top quality materials and professional crews to make sure that each job is done right so it will give you the years of service, security, and protection you need from the unpredictable Oklahoma weather. McRae Roofing offers residential and commercial roofing, ventilation services, and custom copper designs. McRae Roofing is dedicated to exceeding the homeowner's expectations. It's not just a roof, it is your home's crowning glory. Call McRae Roofing today at 405-692-4000. That's 405-692-4000. Make sure to also visit their website at McRaeRoofing.com. That's M-C-R-A-Y Roofing.com. Don't get caught with a leaking roof. Contact McRae Roofing for your free inspection today. Welcome back. Rolling along here on the 73rd hole, the official podcast of Golf Oklahoma. Colby Powell, Taylor Williams, Sam Humphreys, Jim Woodward, and joining us now, Danny Edwards, legend in the game of golf here in the state of Oklahoma, Oklahoma Golf Hall of Famer. Uh, Danny, you've got a new book that's come out, Driven, the Danny Edwards story with a foreword by Johnny Miller telling the story of your life in professional golf uh, as a race car driver and now this chipping equation uh, that you're working on, trying to teach people a, a different way to chip, a better way to chip, and how to be successful. We appreciate your time today, and uh, tell us a little bit about your book that's coming out, or that's just come out. Yeah, well, thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Well, I'm pretty excited about it. You know, all through my years, I was a kind of a guy that just was interested in a number of different things. And, and, you know, the need for speed was one of them. So I got into car racing and then trying to build a few little businesses, whatnot. And then, of course, uh, play the PGA Tour. So uh, most of them probably thought I was crazy, but uh, it was a good story. So uh, so uh, I just was always interested in, in trying to see how good I could get at things that I attempted. And so, you know, I was a, I was a baseball and basketball player growing up in Edmond. Uh, nobody in my family ever hit a golf ball. Wasn't any golf course in Oklahoma, in Edmond, Oklahoma, but yet in, uh, in two and a half years, uh, after I got a set of clubs, I won the state high school golf championship in Oklahoma, never really had any formal lessons. And I was actually all state basketball player at the same time. So in my senior year, so that's a pretty interesting combination. Um, uh, and then, of course, I uh, went to Oklahoma State. Coach Harris said, you know, if you work hard uh, here, Danny, you might make the team as your junior year. I ended up low qualifier for the first uh, round of the qualifying as a freshman and played every tournament for Oklahoma State for four years. So I just was a guy that put my head to the grindstone when I saw something I wanted to do. I just took took a run at it and listened and learned and, and uh, you know, had had some success at these things. And and, and I met so many nice people, guys, along the way, uh, guys like Roger Penske and, and uh, you know, the top golfers as well. And, and so uh, the race car drivers, Rick Mears and Danny Sullivan, Bobby Rahal, those guys got to be friends. And 
I just I had a blessed life uh, being able to do so many different things and uh, and, and and accomplish some stuff uh, at it. Hey, Danny, it's Woody. Um, I, I, you know, of course, I roomed with your brother David when I was at OSU, and and yeah. I've got to be good friends with you over the years. When when did it strike you that I need to write a book? Because <laughs> I agree with you. I'm glad to see it, and I can't wait to read it. But when did did you just wake up one day, or was this something on your radar that you've been thinking about for a long time? You know, Woody, it, it was on my radar for quite a while because really mostly because guys would come to me and, you know, and I'd tell them about the race I went to last week or, you know, this, that, and the other. And they said, Edwards, you ought to write a book. You've, you've done these things. You've raced cars. You've, you've outrun the policeman quite a few times on the highways. You know, I'm not particularly proud of that. But uh, <laughs> uh, they just kept saying you ought to do this and, and for really for a number of years and you know, I knew it was going to be a good bit of work and time, but uh, I finally decided, you know, when COVID happened, I just sat down in my office at home and started writing and, and wrote for about two months. And uh, I sent the manuscript to a publisher and he said, I like this a lot. And, and that's really how it happened. That's cool. That's Danny, good. Danny, I'm really curious. You know, I, I, I was at the uh, Oklahoma Golf Hall of Fame banquet, and you told a great story that I would love for you to share again about how you got your start in the game of golf and also um, how you spent time at Quail Creek. Would you care to share that story growing up? Oh, absolutely. That's one of my favorites. Well, you know, Edmund, as I said, didn't have a golf course and, of course, no professional no instruction or anything. So, so I only got to play uh, other courses with our high school matches, you know, as a as a sophomore and junior when I when I first really got on the golf team. And we got to we there was a if you remember guys there was a, a PGA Tour event back in Oklahoma City at Quail Creek called the Oklahoma City Open mm-hmm. back in the late '60s and early '70s. And so Mr. Vossler had had uh, invited the top. I think it was 12 or 13 boys in the state high school golf tournament to come out and play with a pro who volunteered nine holes at Quail Creek. And I had finished in the top 15, my, uh, or 13, whatever it was, my, uh, my junior year. So I got to play with Harold Henning, nine holes at, at Quail Creek. And I thought I died and gone to heaven. The course was so beautiful. I was used to playing at Eastern Municipal Golf Course in downtown Oak City with you know, greens uh, that weren't very good and oil derricks on the field. So when I got to go around Quail Creek, I just thought it was unbelievable. And I thought, you know, I've got to get on this golf course. I've got to play somehow. This is my future. This is where I'm going to be. I'm going to play at the Oklahoma City Open someday. I've got to get on these good golf courses and learn how to play them. So I had an old Volkswagen that my folks had bought me, uh, and I would drive over to Portland. In those days, in the late 60s, there was nothing out there on the backside of Quail Creek, maybe one or two houses along 17, but the rest of the course, no mercy hospital. It was just out in the, in the, uh, the country. So I would park on Portland. I would tear, I would just walk across the field about waist high grass, hop across the fence. And I would just look over at the 11th fairway and the 17th green, just dreaming of someday, maybe I would get to play a golf course like that. Well, that turned to figuring out, well, wait a minute, maybe I could sneak on this golf course somehow. <laughs> so I would look over there and I said, you know, if I got caught, I'd probably get thrown in jail because Ernie Bossler's son, Eddie, was in high school. I think it's John Marshall. And, and I beat him in a couple of matches in high school. So I knew if, if Mr. Vossler found out, I'd go straight to jail because I was trespassing. But I thought my, you know, my desire to get better and play that course overcame my fear. So 
A couple of weeks later, I parked my car about 4.30 at night, jumped across the fence, got my clubs, drove them all the way across the field, uh, tossed them over the fence on 11 and played 11 through 17. And I was saying to myself, like I had a caddy, okay, what do you think the yardage is, caddy? Okay, 150, that's my seven. All right, I hit a beautiful shot. Thank you, people. Thank you very much for the applause. I appreciate it. And I played 11 through 17 and thought I'd died and gone to heaven. So I, I started doing this a couple of times a week. <laughs> and just loved it. And in fact, I would go over there late at night, which was pretty scary, hop across the fence and wait for golf balls. That's where I got my golf balls. I couldn't afford to buy any golf balls. And uh, so then I, I, um, I, I uh, you know, of course, finished the school at Oklahoma State, uh, got on the tour. I was out at Palm Springs playing the Bob Hope Desert Classic and walked in the clubhouse. And of course, PGA West was the facility that Mr. Vossler and Mr. Walter had built out there. They saw me, waved me over, said, why don't you have lunch with us here? Sit down. And we got to talking, and I finally decided that I would tell Mr. Bossler. I hadn't told a soul, my parents, anybody. So I said, Ernie, you're not going to believe what I used to do. He said, what's that, Danny? And I said, well, I used to come over on Portland after I played that pro junior that was so beautiful. And I'd pitch my clubs across the fence, walk over to 11 there. He said, and yeah, and you'd play 11 through 17 and then go home. <laughs> and I stopped and looked at him and I said, you knew? He goes, of course I knew. I said, well, why didn't you send somebody down to throw me off the golf course? He said, Danny, you weren't bothering anybody. It was late in the day. You were just a young kid trying to get better. And I always thought, fellas, that was the kind of guys we had in Oklahoma City with Joe and Mr. Vossler and Art Proctor and UC Ferguson and, and – uh, uh, those guys were just great men, and they understood the desire that I had to uh, to get better. You know, Danny, that that right there is one of the best stories that that I've heard in for Oklahoma golf. Because we know one of the great things we love about the show is we help grow the game, and that's just an ultimate story of individual yeah. self and helping younger people grow the game. Sadly, so yeah. probably one of the main reasons you're able to get to the PJ Tour, and that, that leads into my next question because. We've talked so many times on this show about how hard it is to get to the highest level of golf, which makes it even more compelling that you and your younger brother, David, were both able to get on the PJ Tour. So kind of just talk to us a little bit about how, how y'all's rivalry has evolved since both y'all were able to be such great players and kind of what's your favorite memory from you two battling it out when you were younger? Sure, sure. Well, it was a little bit interesting, guys, because, you know, I was five years younger than David. And, and I was a good athlete in basketball and baseball. David was a different uh, mind, a different guy than me. He had a different kind of a makeup. He was a slow-moving guy. And so we really didn't fight against each other or, or really compete very much because there was a big difference in our ages. But I tried to help him, tried to help him, you know, and get him clubs and work with him. And, and it was tough because I was just hell-bent on – you know, on getting to the top, and, and he just had a much slower way that he approached things. But but we always pulled for each other, and, and uh, whenever I could, we, you know, when Picking Bird was built, uh, when I was in college, we finally had a golf course in the home in our hometown of Edmond, and I would take David out there early on in his golf career before the course was even grassed in, and we'd jump across the fence, kind of the same thing I did over Calgary, except on the dirt of, of Picking Bird, and we'd play – the holes in the dirt and David didn't really want to do it. He didn't like that idea as, as, as I can't blame him, but I'd hit three woods off the dirt and dry to the tee on And David didn't really want to do that kind of thing. And so we, you know, we kind of struggled a bit in, in, in those years, but uh, bless his heart. He stayed with it. He was focused. He got it done in his way. 
and uh, had a great year on a great uh, career on the PGA Tour, and, and we both pulled for each other. I mean, he caddied, David caddied for me on numerous tournaments on the tour, uh, and even amateur golf, and and I'd like to think that uh, he learned a little bit from me, even though I was probably pretty tough on him. That's Oklahoma Golf Hall of Famer Danny Edwards joining us here on the 73rd Hole Podcast. And, Danny, we appreciate your time. So you you got this stuff going, the chipping equation. That's actually what you were doing whenever we called you. You were teaching some people this. So uh, if I understand correctly, you know, I I just had a baby, so I haven't been able to play golf in a while. When I go back out, (laughs) first thing I should do is grab my 60 degree and start hitting some flop shots. Am I right? Uh, Not quite. Not quite. Uh... (laughs) You know, I you know I love this game like you guys do, Woody. You've been with it all your life, like David and I have, and we've agonized for years and years over the inability of people to chip. All my years on the tour, every Wednesday and a lot of Mondays, I would get to play with four gentlemen, sometimes ladies, and I would agonize over their inability. And I would say, okay, how are you going to play this shot? And basically, it was here in the headlight. They had no idea. They. You know, they look on the tour and they see the guys out there using these lofted clubs and they think that's what they should use. And so I started to do some research uh, some, you know, five, six years ago about horizontal momentum because I believe that that was the trend of the golfer around the greens, not these lofted clubs that send the ball up in the air. So I actually uh, ended up with a very unusual thing. I go up to Lake Placid, my wife and I, and I, I had a guy sign up who was one of the three original calibrators of the TrackMan system. So Ronnie and I got to be good friends. I taught him the chipping equation system. He absolutely loved it and teaches it, has, has taught it the last three years to all of his kids in Denmark. And so I said to I, I said to him, did you guys ever do any analysis of chipping when you were doing all your other stuff? And I said, no, we didn't. I said, would you consider it? He said, we'd love to do it. So I commissioned the first ever TrackMan analysis of chipping in Denmark about three and a half years ago. And the final statement of analysis after hitting 300 chips with everything from an 8-iron to a 62-degree lob wedge was, quote, with swing speeds below 30 miles an hour and lofts above 45 degrees, the ball starts rolling across the face, skidding across the face, compromising spin rate, launch angle, and quality of strike, end quote. Lob wedges are flawed for short swing speed shots around the green. That's why all of us have made what we thought was a pretty good swing. We're landing that we wanted to land the golf ball out there someplace, and it goes about half the distance. The golf balls today are so hard, they don't stay on the face of the club. So horizontal momentum is your friend. The most consistent club in our bag is a putter because the ball stays on the ground all the time. And so what I did is, is develop two clubs with two simple formulas for carry and rollout that allow the golfer to calculate an accurate landing spot for a chip and a predictable rollout. So you can divide the distance you are from the hole in steps, yards, paces, uh, apply one of the two simple, simple formulas to it, which shows you the basic landing spot that you need to land that chip. And there are only four, five, six, seven steps right in front of you. You know, anybody can learn to do that. Uh, and so it's just made the chipping so much simpler and easier for people. I'll tell you one quick, really thing. I have a friend who is a professional bowler and a PGA golf professional. What a combination. I asked him a few months ago, Bobby, what do you guys aim for when you're, when you're bowling? 
you aim for the right side of the head pin or the left side of the second pin. He says, Danny, we don't even look at the pins. I said, what? We don't even look at the pins. We look at the arrows. On the, on the lanes, there are seven arrows about five steps away, and that's what they aim at. Where in God's green earth all these years have we been trying to teach golfers, 15, 20, 25 handicapped golfers, to look out at a flagstick on the green that is 60, 70, 80, 90 feet away and try to put the right amount of energy to a lob wedge or something to get back there, you've got to be kidding me. That's why this game is so difficult for people. The chipping equation gives you the ability to calculate a spot that's four, five, six steps in front of you, and the rollout is predictable with the formulas. You know what, Danny? Listening to that, that is ingenious, and it's so smart because I'm like you when I still teach today. I, I see so many people with Bob Wedges 58, and I said, really, that's not the right club. Now, of course, Oak Tree National forces us to do it a lot more than we'd like to. They don't really give us a lot of chips where we can run the ball. You know what I mean? There's so many elevated greens, but it is, it is ingenious, and it's spot on. The average golfer if it gets the ball on the ground, the quicker it gets the ball on the ground, the better he's going to like it. But I had to change subjects a little bit because okay. I want you to talk about a guy that I only had, oh, I had a brief time with him. I got to play in that Michigan Pro-Am that Roger Pinsky would put on. Yeah. And I, I was very fortunate. The, the year I actually won that tournament, Roger was on my team, and we were – Right, we knew we were playing well. We were on the hunt. We thought we might could win it, and I'll never forget. We hit on one of those holes, and Roger had hit the fairway, but he was two hundred yards from the green. I'd hit it in the right rough, but I only had a wedge, and, and there were some trees in front of us. But I knew I could go over those trees easily and knock the ball on the green. And he's sitting out there in the fairway, calling me to come back, and I'm saying to him, "You get up here." And so <laughs> he came driving up there, and. He said, uh, Woody, we got to go back there and hit that ball in the fairway. We got a better shot there. And I said, You know what, Roger? If we're driving around that racetrack, I'm going to have you tell me what to do. <laughs> we're on my golf course. And I can hit this shot. I don't need anybody else to hit this shot. Yeah. Little did I know, you're not supposed to tell Roger Pitsky what to do. <laughs> so it worked out good. We, I hit the ball on the green. We made the birdie. We won the tournament. But yeah. tell us how intense Roger Pitsky is. Well, he is, as, as you guys know, and a lot of people know, he is a, an amazing man. Uh, he has done so many things, and, and I learned a lot from Roger about doing things the right way. But he is just one of these guys that, uh, that knows how to do it. He takes care of people. He's a tremendous owner for his employees and for his staff. Uh, they love him dearly. Uh, and he just is a guy that, uh, he works tirelessly. I mean, he's, I think he's 83 or four today. And, you know, he, he works as hard as he did back in those days when, you know, when he was, uh, had the, had the, uh, was out there building his companies. And, and of course, it's just, he's just an amazing guy. Uh, there's so many stories about him, but, uh, I got to play with him, uh, for 10 years in the Crosby and, and, and fly all kinds of places and meet all kinds of places. And I just, uh, it was a tremendous 
experience for me to get to be around he and Kathy and, and Walt Zarnicki and his team uh, that were just, they were just unbelievable. They treated people so well and they deserve the success that they've gotten. Danny, growing up at Oak Tree, I heard many, many stories about Labron Harris and Mike Holder. Obviously, Labron Harris was your coach at Oklahoma State, and Mike Holder was your teammate at Oklahoma State. Uh, would you care to share me maybe one story about each of those two? And and you're going to have a tough one to follow because we had Bob Tway on a couple weeks ago, and the Mike Holder story ended up uh, with a little wrestling. Oh, yeah? Well... Yes, there's some pretty good stories. Coach was amazing. You know, when I went there as a as a high school senior, uh, after winning the state high school championship, I was so excited because I saw Coach would see in the newspaper that I'd won and he'd want me to come to Oklahoma State real bad. So when I got up there a few weeks later, he said, come up and let me show you around. He said, now look, he said, we got a lot of good players here from all over the country. If you really work hard, you might make the team by your junior year and I'll give you more scholarship help, but you know, we got a great team. When I went home, I was in shock because I thought I would be making the team right away. I didn't even think about it. It wasn't that I thought I was anything great shakes, but I had played pretty good. So the first qualifying round uh, was at Lakeside, and I was a low qualifier and ended up uh, playing basically every tournament for Oklahoma State for four years. So, uh, you know, I, 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 he gave me – I wouldn't be surprised if he said that on purpose, guys because he knew maybe enough about me just from being around a little bit that he knew that would drive me to, to be the best that I could be. Uh, so, uh, you know, and, but, the, but the downside of that story is I was a little bit not quite right. I missed two tournaments. When I finished my freshman year, I had had a really good year. I had beaten Mike in every single tournament. And we had played the Fall Buckeye Classic up at Ohio State where the NCAA is this year. And in the spring, I finished third individually in the tournament, was number one on the OSU team. And, and of course, we were going back there for the NCAA, and I thought, oh, boy, this is going to be great. So Coach comes to me after the last tournament in the, in the spring and says, Danny, you and I are going to have a playoff to go to the NCAA. I said, you've got to be kidding me, Coach. I beat Mike every single tournament this year. Well, he's a senior, and, you know, we got to let him have a chance. So he said, well, you're way ahead. You've got a lot of strokes ahead of him. Don't worry about it. We're going to play two rounds. So he played two rounds. Mike's still ahead. So coach says, we're going to play another round. And uh, Mike's still ahead, or I'm still ahead. He says, well, we got, we got to play one more round. So he did this three times. And finally, Mike got ahead of me in one round. And he said, okay, I'm going to take Mike to the NCAA. Well, I wasn't too happy about that. But uh, I just chalked it up to experience. I said, well, you know, I can't do anything about it. I'm just going to go back, get my head to the grindstone, have a great summer playing amateur golf, and come back to Oklahoma State. Uh, in the fall. So Mike and I were real close, I have to say, along and through there, and, and that was probably the reason. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense there, Danny. I, I would be a little frustrated myself. But to kind of continue on with, with your playing career, looking at it, you won five times on the PGA Tour, two of which were in uh, Greensboro. So kind of just yeah. tell us, what about Greensboro, too, that drives so much, and why did you have so much success there? I don't know. Maybe it was kind of the racing capital of NASCAR racing. Maybe something happened to me there. I had some extra genes uh uh, working for me there but uh you know the people were great at greensboro and uh i did uh, get to play with benny parsons i remember and uh had a great time there in fact i uh called the uh, tournament director the second the year after i won in 77 i said 
or no, I think it was 82. When I won 82 the year after 83, I said, hey, what do you think if I wear my racing suit for the Pro-Am, playing in the Pro-Am? He said, that's a great idea. The people would love it. I said, no, no, I, I wasn't really thinking about doing that. He goes, no, you got to do it. You got to do it. So John Solheim was in my group, Benny Parsons. There I am standing in the middle with my race suit and my helmet. I played the first hole at the GGO at Forest Oaks with my racing suit and helmet, and I actually made a par. <laughs> That's awesome. That is so awesome, Danny. So I want to uh, I want to change gears a little bit because your book talks about you and uh, race car driving, and I'm curious how that yes. came to be. You know, what level did you accomplish in racing? You said you want to be great at everything you do. So how did that happen, and kind of what were the results of your race car driving career? Well, that's a great question. It uh, I really started. I, I was always interested in cars, guys, muscle cars. I could tell you every muscle car on the road that makes the model. My mom used to go crazy when I'd holler out 67 GTO 396, you know, or 442 or something, Oldsmobile. And so I just love cars, and, and the idea of racing was just something that appealed to me, the speed, the danger. Uh, and then when I got to know Roger and, of course, went to his races, that even, you know, uh, made me more interested in it. So I finally decided to get a Formula Ford. Uh, which is an open-wheel, single-seater, like an Indy-type car, except several levels below in speed. And I took it up to, uh, the first place I took it to was Dallas for the driver's school. It was really freezing cold, so I got in it, got it all ready, and got up to the front. I was uh, the first guy in the in the practice lap, and I took out the very first turn. I slid off into a ditch and had to sit there the whole time, and so I got the car back to the pits after the session was over. And the marshals came over and they said, uh, you know, uh, you have to warm the tires up a little bit when it's cold like this before they'll stick to the road. And so I learned some things the hard way, but uh, uh, I ran the uh, I ran the big race that I won was the June Sprint, which every year is held in Elkhart Lake, Wisconsin, at a at a phenomenal track, a four mile road course. Uh, called Elkhart Lake uh, Road America. The Indy cars run there. The NASCAR cars run there. There were 125 Formula Fords qualified. Uh, I had the fastest lap. I sat on the pole and led every lap and won the race. John Solheim was there. The ping was sponsoring my car. So I get out and I shake the hands and, uh, you know, enjoy the trophy and go down to Milwaukee and get on a flight to Houston. And the next morning, I'm out at the Houston Open getting ready to play the Houston Open golf tournament. I'm thinking to myself, you know, there's not one single guy here at the golf tournament that has any earthly idea what I just did. Danny, that's so awesome. So I've, I've gotten really into Formula One the last couple of years. Just yeah. curious, with, with your history, are you a Formula One guy? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. In fact, I, you know, you get as old as I am, you've got stories on most things. I got a call from the, the, the director of the Phoenix Formula One race back in the uh, – Oh, that would have been in the mid-80s. And he said, Danny, uh, Alon Prost, uh, Derek Work, and Nigel Mansell are coming to town for the F1 race. They're all golfers. Would you take them out to play golf? I said, of course I would. So I took them out to train a couple rounds. And Nigel said, well, come on down to the racetrack tomorrow. Uh, before qualifying, I'll let you sit in my F1 Ferrari. And I said, oh, that'd be cool. So I get down there. It's a couple hours before they're qualifying. So I get in there. And he says, well, go ahead and sit in the car, get in there. Well, I put one leg over the cockpit of that car, and I had six Italian guys on me so fast you couldn't believe it. They said, no, 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 absolutely not. Nigel said, come on, no big deal. He races. He's not going to hurt him. No, no, impossible. Nigel said, no, get out of the way. Let him in. So I got to sit in the Ferrari 
Formula One car, Nigel Mansell's car, in the garage probably an hour and a half before qualifying. I might be the only American uh, golfer that has ever sat in a Ferrari on on uh, in the garage getting ready to, to go out and qualify for a Formula One race. That's so cool. That's so. Do you have a favorite driver currently, or have you not kept up with it as much? Oh no, I like to watch it. Watch it. David and I watched it uh, yesterday and then last night. You know, it's it's such a it's a fabulous series. You know, I mean, it's funny because the IndyCar guys call it a high speed parade, and to some degree, it is that because there's not a whole lot of passing going on. I mean, it's you know who's got the most money and can put it into the cars, but but they're spectacular cars and it's fun to watch them and it it it. It's hard to, to, to know the speed, the, the, the cameras and the TV just can't capture the speed they're going around these turns at, but it's, it's really uh, high drama, and I, I do, I love to watch it and, uh, and closely. Yeah, definitely the definition of high drama, Danny, for sure, a lot of barely exhilarating stuff going around, like you said, just how fast they go, it's really exciting, yeah. you know, kind of, kind of staying on the same track of, of your kind of post-playing uh, career. I remember when I was younger playing in these junior tournaments all over the state, and I'd get to all these really nice courses, and I would see these fancy-looking divot pools all over the place. You know, they kind of had little shorter prongs, had a, a place to put your yeah. thumb, you know, wouldn't get yeah. too deep into it. So kind of tell us about those, Danny. I understand you're the mastermind behind those uh, invented things. Yeah. You know, guys, I like I said, I was kind of a guy that saw things and said, you know, I think I could make that better, you know. And I looked at ball marker pair tools and, and the way they most people lift and twist, and Anyway, long story, I, I did some research. I actually commissioned about six university research studies on ball mark repair. And all of them came back with the same uh, response, that the long-tong tools do more damage than good to the, to the repair because they go in and tear up the roots of the plant. So I made a tool that had very short, stubby tongs and kind of a stopper, just about a quarter of an inch from the tip of the tongue so that they wouldn't go in the ground very far and, and tear up and destroy the roots. Uh, and I made a lot of progress with it. We had probably a hundred courses, uh, great courses like Medina and others across the country that uh, banned traditional tools and tried to train. But, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult. Uh, the superintendents at golf courses are an unusual group of guys. They're great guys. They love what they do. They have a challenging business, but they don't want to be bothered by a golfer that's got a, a, a ball mark repair tool. And I could never get them to really buy in and understand that this was a benefit of golf green. And so uh, I, I worked my tail off and spent a lot of money at it for a few years, had some success. I even had the guys that started soft bikes. Uh, Myron Gerber and, and uh, Bill, uh, fellow named Bill, can't remember his last name, uh, called me and said, tell us all about this. How come we haven't heard about this? This is the next fall uh, bike. And I said, well, that'd be cool if it is. So they joined up and they tried it. We tried to get Arnold involved and, and he had a lot to do. Gary, a player, had gotten in some, some bad stuff with some golf club companies. And so I just could never really get it over the top. And every time I go on a golf green, I see, because most people fixing ball marks, all they do is start the healing process over again. They do so much damage, they fall back to zero. And so most ball marks never go away uh, because they get refixed, you know, joke, uh, instead of what they really get is re-damaged. But I just couldn't quite spend a lot of money, but couldn't quite get it over the hump, and so it just went away. 
Danny, I, I did a little research on you, and I, I think I'm about to say three things that people didn't know about you, that you were the state champion in ping pong. You scored 42 points in a playoff game for Edmond High School in a basketball game, um, and you were the first individual state champion uh, for Edmond. Uh, which of those three accomplishments are you most proud of? And, and I got to hear more about how the state championship of ping pong works. <laughs> Well, I think that might be a little exaggeration. I, I was a pretty good ping pong player, but I don't think I ever went that far. I don't remember. I, I played at a lot of church tournaments and uh, and and uh, other people's houses. I was pretty good. I didn't run across uh, much of anybody that I could uh, that I couldn't beat. But uh, you know, probably of those, my my career in basketball at uh, Edmond High School was a lot of fun. The golf, of course, was where I ended up, but. You know, I was a kid, guys. I won every wind sprint. I won every time we ran the stairs. I I was the last guy in the gym shooting balls, uh, you know. I just was a kid that wanted to be the best at whatever I could do. And the only way I knew to have a chance to get there was just to look around and everybody else had gone home. And I was still working. I was still practicing. And uh, so me and Billy Mike Thompson were the guards at, at, at Edna High School. We had a great time together. He's a great friend. And uh, those 42 points I scored with, with no three points and eight-minute quarters was a pretty good run at Crooked Oak that game. Danny, we could, we could keep you all day because I, I just <laughs> love listening to your stories. Um, I wanted to touch on one thing before I let you go, though, and this is more personal for me. Um, Talk to me, how is David doing? Uh, because uh, Tom Jones had let me know that he uh, had some uh, medical issues, and I was, I was just hoping you could catch me up. Yeah. Well, he's, you know, he's doing the best he can. He's, uh, uh, you know, they, they found some problems when they did an MRI a few months ago, and so he's been on uh, treatment, and uh, he'll go back up to uh, to Duke uh, Medical Center here in a, in a week or so, and uh our prayers and hopes are uh, every day that uh, that he's on the mend and he can uh, get back to uh, to playing some golf and, and being the being the buddy and the, and the brother that, that I I've always loved and uh, thought a lot about. Yeah. Well, you you send him our care and our love and our prayers for us, okay? Because I will. Uh, I will say the Edwards family. Uh, just so those listeners out there, it's it, it's too bad all of you haven't got to know them the way I did because there's no finer people on the planet Earth. Well, thank you guys, appreciate it, Danny, appreciate it. Danny. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, best of luck to your brother, uh, the founder of the Royal Grip, Danny Edwards, Oklahoma Golf Hall of Famer. His new book, Driven: The Danny Edwards Story, with a foreword by Johnny Miller. Uh, Danny, can't thank you enough. Have a good one. Thank you, Danny. thank you guys. Really enjoyed. Appreciate you, the time. Danny. Yep. You bet. Bye. That was Oklahoma Golf Hall of Famer Danny Edwards joining us here on the 73rd hole. We appreciate his time. Uh, now we've got another guest that we want to welcome to the show. Uh, Mark is joining us here on the 73rd hole. Now, you might recognize him more as the gentleman who went viral for holding his $18 Michelob Ultra as Tiger Woods <laughs> hit a golf shot at the PGA Championship. Everyone else has a nice, tiny, grainy video that they can watch on their phones. But our guy Mark has this image for life. Mark, what have the last five days been like as you went crazy viral from the PGA Championship, essentially for just watching the golf, uh, not through your phone? 
It's been crazy. It's been absolutely crazy. I, it's something that's been unbelievable. Never in my wildest dreams did I think standing there watching Tiger Woods uh, hit a shot and me holding a beer that it would turn into this. It's just been it's been a lot of fun, but it's it's been crazy. Now, Mark, I think the question everyone wants us to ask is, number one, did you get your $18 back either in beer from Michelob Ultra or in a sponsorship or somehow uh, get those $18 back for that legendary beer you were holding? Well, not yet. They, they, they're promising me, as they said, copious amounts of beer and <laughs> merchandise and, and the potential to go to other PGA events. So... I am waiting, so we'll see what happens. Now, now Mark, I got, I got two questions. One is that, have you ever paid $18 for a beer before in your life, or did this set a record? This did set a record. I will say that it did. Uh, I will say, just in defense, it was 25 ounces. So, uh, you know, it, by the time uh, you, you got done drinking, hopefully you got $18 worth uh, of $18 worth of beer, but... Uh, you know, you look at what you pay at the ballpark. I was trying to equate it, saying, "Well, you pay eight or nine dollars for a twelve-ounce beer. You know, you double it. You possibly could be, uh, you know, eighteen dollars." But yeah, I mean, I know a lot of people were questioning that, and uh, one of the comments was, "I didn't have a phone because I had to sell it in order to pay for my beer." <laughs> <laughs> That's probably a good point. Now, was that was that your first and only beer of the round, Mark, or was that number two or three that we didn't see? What what was the official count? Well, it was it was one thirty, uh, you know, when uh, uh, Tiger teed off. So I'm I, I guarantee it was not my first. But uh, you know, they didn't start selling beer until about ten o'clock. Matter of fact, I was with my my brother and my nephew and a good friend, and they we got there about nine o'clock, and they tried to buy a beer, but it, they wouldn't sell to ten. So you know, uh, so I, I'm sure it was probably uh, two or three down the road. Now, Mark, I'm curious, when did you realize you were going viral? I, I've never really talked to someone who has gone viral, viral for something they really didn't know that they were going viral for. So how long did it take from the time that Tiger hit that shot on Friday for you to realize you're now a superstar on Twitter? Well, it, was, it, it started about 7 o'clock that night. Uh, you know, Tiger hit the shot maybe about 1.30, 1.45. Uh, after we stayed at the tournament till around seven, seven thirty, walked over to another bar down the street and was just sitting there and with the, like I said, with my brother and nephew and a friend, just lit up. And at about seven o'clock, uh, I kind of realized that. And again, I am not a big social media guy, but uh, they were, and they just were showing me everything. That's five days, and you know, ultra got a. Nicklob Alter got a hold of me, and it's, uh, as they say, the rest is kind of history. Now, Mark, I think the all-American question is, are you iPhone, Android, or flip phone? What kind of phone do you have, since we don't know the answer? Well, I, I am an Android guy. Now, my kids all yell at me and tell me I need to be an <laughs> iPhone guy, because, uh, you know, they, 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 they don't like Android, but uh, I've been an Android guy, and uh, matter of fact, another, uh, another comment on the uh, uh, Twitter was, uh, I probably, the last phone I bought was probably at Radio Shack in 1994. So. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, Mark, that leads into my next question. I'm curious, did it ever cross your mind to pull your phone out in that fateful moment? 
You know, no. I, I, I did have it out after the ball. You know, the, unfortunately, the Aaron shot hit a guy like two over from us, just nailed this guy in the arm. He's screaming like his arm's broken, and the ball bounced right by my feet. And so when Tiger was coming up, I took some pictures as he came up. But then, uh, you know, I'll be honest with you, I'm not very good with my phone and the video and stuff. And I've always kind of, hey, as they say, live in the moment and wanted to watch him hit the ball because it was a tough second shot. And then also they had a sign. They had signs up that said, do not take pictures of anybody or any player within 100 yards. Well, as you see, nobody paid attention to that. <laughs> I, I had put my... I put my phone down and just held on to my beer. Yeah, well, hey, you followed the rules, and uh, you got social media famous for it. Mark, we appreciate you taking a few minutes to have some fun with us. Uh, Enjoy being a a viral sensation. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. Have a good day. Thanks. Have a good one. Oh, man, that was Mark, the uh, the Michelob Ultra guy from the PGA Championship, joining us here on the 73rd hole. What a legend. What, my favorite part is that he was following the rule of not having your phone out to take pictures of guys within 100 yards. That's my favorite part. My favorite part is that he was exactly like I thought he would be. 100%. That's exactly what I wanted Mark to sound like. <laughs> that was great. Shout out to Mark for being true to himself. Uh, gentlemen, Great week. We've got uh, everybody turn your TVs on this afternoon. Watch Stanford and Oregon at the national championships. Uh, I know women's college golf isn't the biggest draw, but Rachel Heck and Rose Zong can seriously play some golf. So check that out. And then next week, uh, we've got nationals. Sam, are you for sure confirmed you're going down to Scottsdale? I'm confirmed. I'm going to Scottsdale, boys. I will be live uh, reporting on 98.1, the sports animal. And uh, I'm sure we'll do podcasts at least on Tuesday and Wednesday night. Yeah, um, for sure. And, uh, I mean, hopefully – we don't have our plans spoiled yes. by OU and it's OSU. It's very dependent, but I feel like the bet's pretty good that OU or OSU or both are going to make the, you know, at least the final four. Or, I, the Tuesday, we're going to have the top eight and the top four, so and, I'll and, be chilling. And you would assume both make the top eight. If they don't, obviously one fan base in this state is going to be very depressed. Yep. Yeah, it would be a major buzzkill if they didn't make it. But we're going to have great coverage of the national championships next week. Memorial next week, too, by the way. It's just golf. It doesn't stop, uh, especially this time of year. It does not stop. So, uh, everybody, have a great weekend. We're back next week with more. Thanks for listening to the 73rd Hole, the official podcast of Golf Oklahoma.